Have you ever been to a dead church before? I heard about one church that was so dead that during the worship service, one of the members had a heart attack and died right in the middle of church. They called EMS and they had to carry five people out before they got the right one. That's a dead church, isn't it? Churches are dying at an alarming rate across the United States. Our own North American Mission Board, you'll see the picture on the screen, reports that 1,000 of our Southern Baptist churches every year are dying. They're going out of business. And the question is asked, as you see on the screen, now what? What happens in a community when a church no longer exists? Does the church uh, have any gospel outreach? Is the community uh, no longer able to hear the gospel? Now what happens? 1,000 churches in our own denomination every year. The head of our Lifeway Christian Resources, Tom Rayner, says many other churches are on their way to dying, and they may not even know it. These churches, he says, are increasing in number. It's getting scary out there. And then he says this, most dying churches will die. Although they could turn around, most of them will die. Now, there's always been dead churches. I don't know if you know this or not. There's always been dead churches. Even in the days of the New Testament, there were dead churches. I'm going to ask you to take your Bible this morning and turn to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to look at a dead church in Revelation chapter 3 because Jesus spoke to a church and He called it a dead church. And, and, and ladies and gentlemen, I would say that when Jesus says a church is dead, that's a dead church. Amen? Would you stand with me? We're looking at Revelation chapter 3. We're looking at these series of seven churches that we read about in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And today we're looking at the church at Sardis, chapter 3 of Revelation, verses 1 through 6. I just want to read for you verse number 1 as Jesus says this to the church. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Jesus is saying, I am the one who has everything under control. I am the one who owns the church. The church belongs to me. We're told in other places in, in the Bible, Jesus says, I will build my church. And, and Paul writes that, that Christ is the head of the church. And so, so Jesus is asserting here His authority over the church. And then He says this, I know your works. I know what you're doing. I know what's happening down there at the church at Sardis. And He says... You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Isn't that painful? Our Heavenly Father today, make us mindful that You have created the church and You are the head of the church. And You call the church to take the kingdom to the ends of the earth. Lord, help us not to become a dead church, but to be alive with the presence of our Heavenly Father through our Savior, Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And help us, Lord, to be the church You're calling us to be. And as we would investigate this church at Sardis, may we be mindful of any area in our own lives and in our own church where adjustments need to be made that we might follow after You in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, let's look at some painful truths about dying churches. The first truth I want you to notice is this. Many churches face a diagnosis of death and they don't even know it. 
There are many churches out there that as Jesus walks through the churches, as He says here in Revelation 2 and 3, as He walks through the churches and sees the churches, there are many that have a diagnosis that you are a dead church, but they don't know it because on one hand they may not be listening, on the other hand they may listen but just not be willing to do anything about it. Notice here, Jesus says, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. There's no commendation as in the other churches. There's no, there's no here's some things you're doing well. Uh, gee, he just cuts right to the chase and says, here's the diagnosis, you are a dead church. This church may have had programs. They may have had the best programs out there. This church may have had facilities, a, a great facility perhaps, or perhaps just a small meeting place. They may have had uh, activities. They may have had people. They, they may have had their own website, and they all may have had their own church t-shirt to are out in the community. But all these things, if they were there, made no difference to the church being alive or dead. They were dead. A zombie church, if you will. Moving, but dead. The presence of people and programs, but the absence of the power of the life-giving Spirit of God. Let me ask this question this morning. How can any church get to that point? How can any church get to the point of being a dying church when they're thinking everything is well, but inwardly they are a dead church? I was reading some things that Tom Rayner wrote. Again, he's our, the head of our Lifeway Christian Resources he does a great deal of research on the church and publishes resources for the church. He wrote an article called, Why Dying Churches Die. And here's some of the things he said. The doctor told my dad he was dying. Our family physician was firm. Dad was on a short path to death. My father, then 58 years old, had been smoking for four decades. Dad had to make major and dramatic changes or he would die within a few years. He never stopped smoking. Dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer at the age of 61. He died one month after his 62nd birthday, Tom Rayner says. And then he says this, Many churches are dying. Some are so sick that they are a few years or perhaps a few months from death. But many refuse to do anything. Any potential turnaround will not take place because these churches do nothing. Why? Why do these churches walk resolutely down the path towards death? Why are they refusing to do anything? Why don't they attempt something dramatic or something bold? And he says, here are six common reasons that churches do nothing when they're dying. Number one, they refuse to admit they're sick. Very sick. Some churches have attendance that has declined more than 80%. They have no gospel witness in the community, no baptisms in more than 20 years, but they say that they're fine and nothing is wrong. Reason number two. They're still waiting on the magic bullet pastor. If only we could find the right pastor. Now watch out, Rodney. If only we could find the right pastor, we would be fine. But they bring in pastor after pastor, and each one of them leaves after a short time, frustrated that the congregation was so entrenched in its ways, and then the church starts to search all over again. Number three, they fail to accept responsibility, Tom Rainer says. It's the community's fault. It's the previous five pastors' fault. It's the fault of the culture that we live in. People just don't want to go to church. Reason number four of why churches don't do anything 
is they're not willing to change at all. Tom Rainer says, I met with the remaining members of a dying church. They viewed me as the great hope for their congregation, but my blunt assessment was not pleasing to them, especially when I talked about change. Finally, one member asked that if they would have to look at the words of a hymn on the screen instead of the hymnal, if they made changes. I stood in stunned silence and soon walked away from a church that would close its doors for good in six months. Reason number five. Their solutions are all inwardly focused. They don't want to talk about reaching their community that is ethnically changing. They, they want to know how they can make their own church more comfortable and palatable for the remnant of members who are still there. And number six, why don't churches do anything? They desire to return to 1985. Or 1972, or 1965, or 1959, or you pick the date. Because those were the good old days of the church. That's when it was happening. That's when things were established. That's when God was moving. If we could just go back to the good old days. Tom Rainer says these are six reasons why churches fail to adjust and, and do what they need to do in order to stay vibrant and alive instead of dying on the vine. The second painful truth that we hear, that we see in this passage of Scripture, and that is that dead churches are called to wake up. Dead churches are called to wake up. Verses 2 and 3, Jesus lists five steps for the church to take. These are not written from Tom Rainer. These are not written from the Southern Baptist Convention. These are not written from any denomination. These are five things Jesus says to the church. It says, you need to wake up from being dead. You might say, well, Pastor Mark, if you're dead, how can you wake up? And I would say God's in the business of waking up dead things, dead people, including churches. Five steps. Number one, wake up. Notice your surroundings. Notice what's happening. Be alert. Open your eyes. See clearly. Number two, strengthen what remains and is about to die. That's what Jesus says. He said, I've not found your works complete in the sight of God. You're incomplete. You're, 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 you're not doing the things. You're, he's, he's in essence saying you're half-hearted about your faith. You're half-hearted about your church. You're, you're not doing things to completion. You're you're, 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 you're Reading the Bible is, is not as it should be. Your praying is not as it should be. Your, your church worship services are not as they should be. Your giving is not as it should be. Your witness in the community is not as it should be. It's not complete. There's something missing. There's something lacking. And he's saying here that in the face of doing things half-hearted, there comes a time when desperate times call for desperate measures. And Jesus says to the church here at Sardis, it's desperate. The third step of waking up is to remember. Jesus says in verse 3, Remember then what you received and what you've heard. Let's think real quickly. What have they received? They had received Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's what they've received. They have received the forgiveness of their sins. They had received the presence of the Holy Spirit. They had received the Word of God. They had received God giving them a church in which to meet and a church family to be a part of. They had received amazing things. And also what they had heard, they had heard the gospel. They had heard that you are dead apart from Christ, that you are dead in your sins, and that your very best, you strive to be the very best you can possibly be, and at your very best, you're still woefully short of measuring up to perfection. They heard the gospel. They received the gospel. 
And they were a vibrant church, at least at one point. But he said, remember these things. When, when, when you look around and you realize spiritually things are kind of dead in your life, or spiritually things are kind of dead in a church, when you look around, you need to go back and start with where you started from. Remember the gospel and the life change that it brought to your life and to your community and your church. Also in verse 3, number 4, keep it. Remember and then keep it. That's another way of saying obey it. Go back and do what you did at first. As Jesus said to one of the other churches, go back and start doing the things that you were doing when the church was established, when lives were being changed, when you loved reading the Bible when it wasn't a chore, when you spent all kind of time in prayer and got lost in your time talking to the Lord. And, and now you're just giving Him a, a little tip or so of your time before you have a meal. Go back and do those things. And then notice number 5 in verse 3 as well. It says repent. Repent. All the churches, repent, repent, repent. A change of, of mind, a change of attitude, a change of heart, a change of direction. Is, is stop doing the things that, that are taking you in the wrong direction and start doing the things that will take you in the right direction. Jesus is saying to this church, it's desperate. And then He gives them a warning in verse 3. If it's not bad enough, Jesus says this, if you will not wake up. If you're not willing to take these steps... Just like Tom Rainer's dad refused to stop smoking and it killed him. Just like Tom Rainer went into a church and he says, here's some things you can do. And they rebelled against it and the church died. Just like his father died. Just like any church will die. No church is above dying if we're not following the things of Christ. So Jesus says here, here's a warning. If you will not wake up, if you will not look within yourself and go back to the roots of your faith and, and, and start doing again what you were doing, if you will not do that, Jesus says, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Can you imagine Jesus coming against you? Jesus is for us. Jesus has, has bought us with His blood on the cross. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes, He has, he has, has paid the ultimate price that we might have forgiveness, and that we might have hope, and that we might have eternal life, and that we might have the church. And if we're not willing as believers to follow Him, and as a church to follow Him, He says, I will come against you. Amen. Don't you know how much that breaks His heart? And don't you know how much that ought to motivate us? To always seek to be in every generation, every stage of life, every phase, every culture, every, every church everywhere should always be saying, Lord, how can we continually wake up, strengthen, remember, and keep things and obey and repent over and over and over again so that we might be a church in position for God to use us and be glorified and not be a church where God says, where Christ says, if you don't shape up, I'm going to come against you. Those are very Painful words for any church to hear. Are there churches that die? Yes, over a thousand a year just within our denomination. Now, a lot of these churches are small, and I've heard people say, well, you know, the city changed and the mill moved out and nobody was there, so the church died. That makes sense. There are other churches that on one occasion, they're running thousands of people, but then the next thing you know, they're, they're, they're boarded up and the building is sitting there empty. I was doing some studying this week, and uh, I came across an article from Reader's Digest, Uses for Old Churches. When a church has died and moved out, it's just a building sitting there, what can you do with a church building? And some very interesting things. Let me share some, some of these with you. In Spain, they, turn, they turned the church into a skate park. Amen? Bring your skateboard, come on in, we'll just move, the pews are gone, we'll, we'll create a skate park. In England, they created a music venue. 
Notice the name of it, Jug Jaws Beat Club. This is the former church. And they advertise it this way. The unique acoustics of the setting make it a truly standout place to catch local and upcoming bands. Everybody wins, right? Except for the church. In Holland, they turned a magnificent sanctuary into a bookstore. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a beautiful picture? But there used to be a magnificent church that met there. In Belgium, they turned a church into a hotel. I'd have a hard time staying in that room. I'm just going to be honest with you. But it's beautiful, isn't it? Can you imagine the dedication of people that were so sacrificial to give to create such a beautiful place to worship God, and now it's a motel. In Ireland, a former church is now a maritime museum. In Nottingham, the United Kingdom, a former church is now a piano bar. In Repton Park, London, a church is now a swimming pool. Can you believe that? I mean, how do you create a swimming pool in that structure? But here, here's what they say about it. This dramatic pool offers swimmers a calming and restorative experience. It makes me sick on my stomach to think that a church has turned into a swimming pool. In Pennsylvania, a church turned into a brewery. What about Ridgecrest Baptist Church? What could we be used for? I thought, well, if this church ever dies, we could be a school, charter school. They're always looking for places. We could be a daycare center, and we've got rooms and things. We could be a recreation center. There's all kinds of things Ridgecrest Baptist Church facilities could become if Ridgecrest Baptist Church were to die. But I hope that I will never be alive for one minute when Ridgecrest Baptist Church is anything but a gospel-preaching, Bible-believing Christ-centered church of believers who meet together and unite together as a family. There's a third truth here. That is, there are still faithful believers even in a dead church. We need to remember this. Even in the deadest of churches, there are still faithful believers. It might be many. It might be a few. And it might just be you. I would say this. Jesus said in verse 4, Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, People who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. They are still being faithful. I would encourage you today as a believer and a follower of Christ, be willing to be a part of the few. Regardless of what the many do out in the culture, or what the many do in the church culture, be willing to be one of the few that's going to stand strong in your faith. I want to challenge you personally with that today. And I also want to challenge you to be willing to be the one. If everybody else falls away, be willing to be the one. I want to encourage you to not give up on your faith, to not give in to your faith, to not give out with your faith, to not give over to the other side. When the culture turns away from the gospel, as it seems to be doing more and more, I want to challenge you and encourage you to stand firm. When denominations, Christian denominations, are turning away from the gospel, I want to encourage you and us to stand firm in our faith. When, when your own church members uh, act in ways outside of the gospel, they're not representing Christ, I want to encourage you to stand firm. I want to, to encourage you when you're tempted to join in with others as they act in ungodly ways to stand firm. 
Be willing to be one of the few, whatever, whatever, the, whatever the, the consequences, whatever the price, whatever the reputation, whatever the cost of it is, be willing to be one of the few or be willing to be the one if need be. There are always a remnant. Painful truth number four, there is a reward for faithfulness. This isn't really a painful truth, it's, it's a great truth. There is a reward for faithfulness. Verse number five. Three rewards are mentioned. I don't have nearly enough time. The first reward is innocence. Won't you love that? Innocence. Though guilty, the blood of Jesus washes away all our sins and makes us pure and white. Verse 5. The one who conquers, the one who stays faithful, will be clothed thus in white garments. There's an innocence. Secondly, there's eternal life. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Our name is there, and there is eternal life when we stay true and stay faithful and, and stay, 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 stay locked into Jesus who is locked into us. And then thirdly, there's recognition. Jesus says, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Now, I've got permission to do this. Tom, stand up for a second. Tom Poole. Now, I don't know what it's going to look like in heaven, but Jesus says... That I will confess His name. Who? The person who stays faithful. I'll confess His name before my Father and before His angels. So, so, so imagine the scene. We're in heaven. And all the angels are gathered around. And, and the 10,000 times 10,000 are all there. And Jesus is there. And God is on His throne. And He's all there. And Jesus would say something like this. And at the, result, at the end will be thunderous applause. That's your part here in just a second, okay? And in that scene, Jesus calls Tom to come out to the front, and he says, I confess that Tom Poole has remained faithful and has conquered. And everybody says, Thank you, Tom, for that. And one by one by one by one, it might take a couple of million years. That's okay. But he will confess us before his Father in heaven. Notice the contrast. On the one hand, if, if you are unfaithful, Jesus says, I will come against you. In fact, in, in, in the face of all that Jesus has done for us, he says, I will come against you. But then if we remain faithful, he will confess us before his Father and before the angels in heaven. Then lastly, we're called to hear and act while we can. This is so important. This is so important for every church. It's so important for this church. We're called to hear and to act while we can. Verse 6, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Don't be hard-headed. Don't be hard-hearted. Don't turn a deaf ear to the voice of your Savior. When you feel His presence in your heart, don't put up a wall. When you read His truth in His Word, don't gloss over it and move on to something else. When He is active in at work in your life and convicting you of sin or of change or of direction, then be mindful to follow that beautiful thing called conviction. Have an ear. Our own International Mission Board states that beside the ruins of ancient Sardis is the modern village of Sart, S-A-R-T a village of about 5,000 people. And in that village of Sartes, on the ancient ruins of Sardis, one of the seven churches of Revelation, 
on this day, there are no known Christian believers there. A call is to wake up. And I don't mean just today. I mean all the time. To keep focused on our Lord. The Lord's Supper is a wake-up call. As often as we receive the Lord's Supper, it's always a wake-up call. Just as Jesus told the church, these are five things that you need to do right now to get off life support. These are five things you need to do because you're followers of me so that I won't come against you, so that you won't face judgment, so that you can live and thrive and survive as a church and be a gospel presence out in the world. These five things that Jesus told the church are the same five things that, that we interact with Him in when we partake of the Lord's Supper as a believer and a follower of Christ. It's a call to us to wake up and be alert to what God is doing in our lives. It's a call to us to strengthen what remains in our Christian walk. It's a call for us to remember, to remember the cross, to remember our conversion, to remember how Jesus washed our sins away. It's a call to obey, to keep what God has called us to do. And the Lord's Supper is always a call to us as Christians to repent, to allow the Lord to examine our lives, and He does but to open up our minds and our ears and our hearts to hear what He has to say and to respond by turning a new direction. The Lord's Supper is for believers. If you're here today and you're a Christian, you've trusted Christ as your Savior, we invite you to partake and participate in the Lord's Supper. If you're here today and you're not, we simply ask you to, to sit and watch and observe and consider the, the, the message of the gospel. How the, 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 the bread, as is, is, is people come forward, they receive a piece of bread, and the bread is symbolic of the body of Jesus. In fact, Jesus said, said when, he, when he instituted this with his followers, he said, eat this bread because it, it is my body that is broken for you. And then when the cup was passed around, Jesus said, this cup represents my blood that was shed for you. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. We remember what Jesus has done for us and the life change that it ought to constantly, continually bring about in our lives as we live out for others. I want to ask our deacons to get in place if they would. And our instructions are going to be this. When we begin to receive the Lord's Supper, uh, we'll ask you just to remain seated. Uh, we'll have some instrumental music being played. Uh, we're not in a rush. We don't want this to be a, a rushed or hurried worship event. We want it to be a worshipful time for you. We'll ask you just simply to make your way to one of the aisles. Come down the aisle. The deacon on the inside will have the plate of bread. And as you step up, either by yourself or as a family or with a friend, uh, he will serve you and he will share the words with you. Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take the bread and pause just a moment. Don't be in a rush. And then step over to the deacon on the outside who will have the, the tray with the juice. Take the juice and, and the deacon will repeat those words. Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. And you take the juice. There's a trash can to drop it in. And your cup in. If you would, make your way back out the outside uh, of the outside aisle and back to your seats so that we can conclude the service in just a few moments. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, help us today as an act of worship to do business with you. Right where we are, here at the altar, with a pastor. May the Lord's Supper today be a great worship time in our hearts and our lives. May it speak to us 
and draw us closer to you. Lord, wake us up where we need it. Lord, your message to Sardis was certainly harsh, but it was necessary. So help us to hear what your Spirit says. Help us to remember your words, your words of salvation. Strengthen us, Lord, to obey and give us the courage to repent of any spiritual deadness. Lord, in this act of worship, may we return to you in Jesus' name. Amen.